Some believe that the more complex one's analysis, the more likely you are to arrive at accurate results. Others, on the other hand, believe that the more opportunities for interpretation, the more the opportunities for deviation from the intent of the original author. Let's jump back into our discussion by looking at literature and see how that applies to our understanding of religious concepts. Once again, here's George. So the novelist, by his telling of a novel, affects the reader by the power of the telling of it. An expert in literary form can take this novel and examine it, expose it to scientific scrutiny, if you will, extracting specific ideas, themes, and methods. How is the character development of the main protagonist accomplished? What were the challenges faced and how were they overcome? How were the scenes and the sense of place constructed? Was the language vernacular or sophisticated? Was the pacing fast, slow, erratic? What was the form? Romance? Adventure? Science fiction? Fantasy? How extensive was the vocabulary? At what level of education was it aimed? Were there technicalities of profession or time and place that gave the story substance? Was it derivative, like another novelist or school of writing, or unique, or simply ill-formed? What themes did the author intend to convey, and what methods were used to accomplish this? Did the author have a message that the reader was expected to absorb and perhaps adopt? Asking questions like these, and hundreds more, a good literary analyst can disassemble a story into what he or she sees as its structural and thematic elements and fabricate from them a concept, if you would, of what this book is about and how it accomplishes its purposes. The literary analyst takes a story apart and analyzes it. The result of this analysis can exceed by many times the volume of the story itself. And with even the very best analysts, sometimes they get it right and sometimes they don't. The author of the novel itself might hear the analyst's conclusions and say, that's pretty accurate. That's what I intended and how I went about it. Or the author might say, not even close. That wasn't what I meant at all. Sometimes analysts will fight over who did the best job of analysis. And they will often disagree markedly and rapidly with each other. Sometimes they will even tell the author he did not understand his own story correctly. Literary analysis, which is founded on Greek philosophical methods, is a rich and complex undertaking, and it creates complicated and detailed arrays, scaffoldings of thoughts, themes, conclusions, opinions, that take on existences independent of and often beyond the original story that they purport to understand. 
they are not necessarily wrong in this, but they are always obviously something other than the story on which they are based. Well, why do we care about this in a book about what Christians believe and why? Because that is just how Christian thinking has worked out its ideas year after year since the time of Paul. It is a thoroughly Greek process, creating vast structures of themes and ideas, analyzed, extracted, abstracted, fabricated, and put up in giant conceptual arrays like tall warehouses filled with row after row, shelf after shelf of analysis after analysis. The problem is they aren't the story the author wrote, and they aren't the author who seeks relationship with his followers. They are concepts fabricated by the minds of people based on a disassembly and analysis of the story. Various groups and individuals have pulled from the scriptural narrative various themes and ideas, fabricated them into philosophical structure, a religious concept, have used this to guide the production of doctrine, ritual, polity, and more, as well as to interpret other themes and ideas in Scripture and in the world, and have given the conceptual structure an independent status and reputation of its own. Saying that various religious groups fabricated them is not meant to imply fraud, but rather an extended and complex process of analysis, extraction, abstraction, categorization, comparison, critique, deduction, induction, and by careful fabrication, piece by piece, category by category, syllogism by syllogism, reference by reference, until whole concepts emerged from this pulling of themes and ideas from the scriptural narrative. As these major religious concepts evolved, they generated layers of subconcepts, including doctrines and practices, patterns of worship, methods of authority and organization, that is, polity, forms of both promotion and defense, and more. Vast warehouses of concepts, each often headed by a religious genius. Were each concept's vocabulary not so overtly religious and dependent on the Testaments and the Apocrypha, it might simply be perceived as only another Greek philosophical school, much like the Platonic, Utilitarian, Stoic, Pythagorean, and Aristotelian, most of which also contained religious concepts. Each concept, each Christian concept, has the same structure as those schools do. It fits within the same basic worldviews. In fact, had Christianity not become so dominant after Constantine, that is, in the 4th century, it might still be regarded as just another Greek philosophical school, one among many. 
the whole fabrication process of Christian religious concepts is simply Greek in its origins and methods. As noted, all of the Mediterranean world and the Middle East had been under the deep influence of Greek philosophical teaching and culture for centuries before the first New Testament book was written. Even the Old Testament itself had been rewritten in Greek because it was the language most Jews spoke, like nearly everyone else in that day and place. This concept-building process, at least in its early stages, may not even have been an intrinsically bad thing. In humble hands, such concepts could help to share God's love with others. One might even say that this is just what Paul did in taking the gospel to the Gentiles. He contextualized the God of Israel into concepts that his hearers would understand so that they might accept the invitation of forgiveness and salvation, the covenant that Jesus shared and embodied. However, the key point is that much of early Christian writing and debate, as well as the establishment of the church after Constantine, the complete integration of the church into the Roman Empire, the energetic establishment of doctrine and creed, ritual, practices, forms of worship, polity, hermeneutical methods, the development of systematic theology, and then the division of the church into countless denominations, tens of thousands at this point, those all owe their foundations to Greek philosophical methods and culture. These produced concepts about God and man, and these concepts multiplied and gained independent recognition and authority. They were about God and about Scripture— the story of life with God, both Old and New Testament, and they contain vocabulary from Scripture as well as Greek philosophy. But they were neither God nor Scripture. They were concepts. Concepts. And this is the foundational problem that Christians need to begin to face today. The idolatry of concepts, the worship of concepts throughout denominations, throughout the church, throughout the ages. And those idols which we worship, creations of our own minds, need to take second place to the God of Israel, to the one who made us and who loves us, to Jesus Christ who saved us, to the Holy Spirit who fills us. We'll look at this again and even more deeply when we gather next time. Well, thank you very much, George. As mentioned, we'll continue to shed light on the difference between concepts gained from analysis of Scripture and Scripture itself. I hope you're finding this discussion as helpful as I am. And I want to remind you that if you want to dig deeper into it, you could, of course, purchase a copy of the book, What We Believe and Why and do so on the website of the same name, whatwebelieveandwhy.com. And we hope you'll join us next time. We'll see you then.